All right, good morning, y'all. Thanks for joining us this morning as we continue our study in the book of Romans. Um, we are in week two of our current rendition, but this is message 17 uh, in our Romans study. I mentioned this last week. Uh, we just launched a new Trailhead website. If you haven't been to it, I would encourage you to go check it out. There's a lot of resources there. Uh, if you are watching this morning on Facebook or Vimeo, um, we are, there's a lot of resources. If you, if you watch over at trailheadonline.org, uh, you can access the bulletin and you can log in and have conversations with others as they watch as well. And so it's a great way to connect in. Um, but last week we mentioned that because we launched a new website, um, we hadn't migrated all the old sermons over. And, uh, and so I put out a bit of an appeal for help because uh, Lori was doing that. And uh, this week, a number of people stepped up, and uh, from what I understand, we now have our full decade of previous sermons uh, posted on the site, uh, available for for you to go and access. So that means all previous 16 messages in the book of Romans are available to you if you'd like to go back and engage those. Uh, And in fact, I would encourage you to if you haven't. Um, There are a number of themes that we're going to be developing over the course uh, of this letter that... that, um, Paul's very subtle in certain ways in the way he introduces them, and, and it, you would do well to, uh, to stay engaged and, and continue learning as we move forward. Now, last week, we summarized where we are in um, Paul's thought in the letter, and, um, and Paul's summary statement of his first three chapters is, uh, is, is in chapter three, where it says, um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That, that summarizes his argument of the first three chapters, that, that we all received an inheritance of brokenness from our first parents, and as a result, we are all falling short of what we were created to be. None of us are human as we were created to be human. All of us are, in fact, blaspheming the God in whose image we are created because we are not imaging him as we were created to do, right? That's, that's a significant problem. That, that is the result of our cosmic treason, uh, our rebellion against God. And as a result of that, we all stand exposed before the righteousness of God, right? As it says in chapter one, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, right? God is not passive at our attempt to ungod God, or to work unjust, injustice toward those created in his image. It's kind of the heart of what he's saying there, right? God is not indifferent. He, our, our cosmic rebellion against him and our need to destroy others, to magnify and build ourselves up, to, to impoverish others, to enrich ourselves, to, to degrade others that we might feel honor, that, that we might use our power not to bless and enrich but, but to curse and diminish others um, for personal security or personal significance or, or um, personal comfort, right? God's not passive, right? God is provoked to wrath by our rebellion because it puts the creation that he made beautiful on its head. It robs it of its glory and fills it with the ugliness of our self-centeredness and our, and our pride. And God is not indifferent, right? So the first three chapters are summarized by that argument that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But chapter 3, one of the most pregnant and and powerful chapters in the entire book, I mean, every word in in that central paragraph in chapter 3 is loaded. We spent four weeks in that paragraph alone, um, lays out God's rescue plan. 
That while God is not indifferent to our sin, he had a plan to rescue us from the consequence of our sin and the power of that sin by acting in love. Jesus, our Savior, became our substitute in judgment so that we could become his partner in blessing. He he, um, stepped in to become our propitiation, our satisfaction, right, um, for for the cosmic consequences of our rebellion against God. And, and our sin was imputed or credited to him, and his righteousness, when we believe in him, is, is imputed or credited to us. That, that's God's plan, right? Jesus did for us what we couldn't do. He won for us what we couldn't win. He earned for us what we couldn't earn. And we receive it as a gift, this blessing of righteousness, as a gift of grace to be received through faith, right? So we get that, that powerful, powerful statement, right, that, that we are saved by grace through faith right? So, so that's kind of where, we, where we, we, um, we came to, right? Um, now, here's the thing, is, is even though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we have ingenious ways of ignoring that and retelling that story. That's such a simple and, and revealing statement when we really consider it and allow it to expose our hearts. The problem is we don't like to have our hearts exposed. So what we do is instead try to expose the hearts of others while concealing our own. Right? We like to, to present our strength while exposing others' weakness. We are addicted to pretending to be what we're not and insisting others are what we despise. We're addicted to othering, defending ourselves and condemning others. Right? That's one of the themes that Paul brings out through the first three chapters. Right? Now, God, of course, has provided a solution for us to rescue us, and that is is Jesus, right? He is the antidote to our pride um, when he gives us grace. Um, and God's greatest blessing is made freely available to us with one requirement, that we receive the grace through faith, right? That we stop pretending and performing. We stop defending and condemning and instead simply come in the humility of faith. It's the only path to grace. And here's the thing we're going to look at this morning. It's the only way to keep your hope alive in this world of broken promises. Now, Paul is exploring the nature and the power of faith in chapter 4, but, but as we move through chapter 4, he, he has a number, again, of sub-theological themes that he continues to develop, right? And, and he has two controversial theological assertions that he is, he is working his way through. As he makes the main argument of chapter 4, there, there are a couple sub-themes that, that are very important. The first is that the gospel justifies the ungodly by grace through faith. So in other words, the central theme he's already presented at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, right? That God justifies the ungodly. Not the godly, because there's none of those anyway, right? He justifies the ungodly, and he, and he does it by grace, purely out of, out of unearned, unmerited love. And we take hold of it through faith by simply responding in trust to the God who gives the promises, right? This is completely counterintuitive and countercultural. It would have been to them, right? Because to the Jewish mind, that's nonsense, right? Why did God give the law? So that, so that I could measure up, so that I could obey it. And obeying it, I could earn a righteousness and feel superior to those who hadn't, right? To the Roman mind, to the Gentile mind that he's writing, they saw the world through honor and shame, right? There, there are those who earn honor and those who earn shame. 
right? Those who have power and don't have power. Those who have wealth and don't have wealth. And, and if you have that power, use that power. And if you have that wealth, flaunt that wealth because that's your honor. It's a sign of God's favor on your life. It is foolishness to them that God would give honor to the dishonorable. That God would favor the impoverished. That God would look on those who would cover themselves with shame and give them the gift of righteousness. It was counterintuitive to them. It is counterintuitive to us. So that's the first theme that he continues to develop in this chapter. And the second is this, that the gospel promise destroys any justification we have for othering people to create these circles of, of internal blessing and external condemnation. That we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We draw this circle and those that are inside this circle are part of the good guys. And, and for some reason, we're always inside that circle. And those that are outside this circle are the stupid ones, the foolish ones, the destructive ones, the evil ones, the, the ones that, that are working against God and against the good of humanity. The, this justification for, for, for subtly puffing myself up and subtly tearing others down, right? He's attacking that, and he's doing it through exposing the work of the law in, in Israel, through, through the Jews, right? Um, the, the law, the Mosaic law, was given to the nation of Israel to make them unique in all of the world, right? The Jews were God's ethnic people. He created an ethnic group and said, you are my peculiar, unusual, strange people on the face of the earth. And I'm going to give you this law to make sure you stay strange, right? So that you stay unusual, so that you are different from the rest of the, of the world, right? And, the, and, and, and this tool that was meant to be a blessing that would lead them to grace became uh, a source of, of boasting and of pride, a way of saying, look, we have the law you don't. And instead of it working its proper function of exposing their need for grace, they used it in its improper way to inflame their pride, their sense of, we're, of superiority. And so Paul is exposing this, this, um, this way of, of abusing this tool that was meant to lead to grace, right? And, and in this, Paul's looking at Abraham. Now, Abraham, of course, is, is the father of the Jewish promise right? He's the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of Moses. So in that sense, he's greater than Moses, right? The covenant that was made with Abraham is greater than the covenant that was made with Moses. There are few people in Jewish history they would have taken greater pride in. In fact, probably none. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, the one who had received the unique promise that gave birth to the Jewish people. He was a source of great pride, and Paul is looking at Abraham and exposing God's work with Abraham to expose their pride in him and to invite them to humility. Um, and by doing that, he's not only doing it for them, he's doing it for us, right? In fact, he was doing that for the Romans. Remember the Near Eastern practice? We talked about this over a year ago. Uh, but the, the honor-shame culture uh, led them to deal with conflict in different ways than we do, right? We, we're very efficient, right? We like to be blunt, direct. We like to solve things and move on, right? In, in ancient Near Eastern and even current Far Eastern world, in, in an honor-shame culture, bluntness is rudeness, right? You deal with conflict indirectly in order to help people save face, 
You deal with conflict not because you're cowardly, but because it's a way of protecting other people's honor while you're exposing something where maybe they have some shame, right? And, and so in many ways, in the book of Romans, Paul is confronting Jewish problems in order to confront problems that existed in the Gentile world, in the Roman world, right? So, so when we read this, we're going to be completely foolish if we're walking away saying, man, those Jews were idiots, right? That the ancient Israelites were, were man, glad I'm not one of them right? The confrontation of the Jewish experience is the confrontation of the human experience. The exposure of the, of the Jewish heart under the law is the exposure of the human heart and its need to continually self-justify through religious means, even if your religious means are non-religious. Our way of othering others, puffing ourselves up, and condemning others. So, so this word is, is for them and it is for us. Take a look at verse 16 because it's the central idea of this chapter. In verse 16, we looked at this last week. That is why it, the promise, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only the adherents of the law, the physical descendants of, of of Abraham and those that are under the Mosaic law, but also the ones who share the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. Um, the central idea of this chapter, the promise depends on faith so it can rest on grace, right? So, so Paul's exploring the, the importance of faith as the way that we rest in, in grace. The promise depends on faith, right? It's the only way to take hold of it. There is no other way to take hold of it except by faith so that the promise can then rest in grace because it was extended through grace. Now, I want to I reiterate some things that we've, we've emphasized in the past. Faith isn't a work that we do, right? It isn't a force that we summon. Faith isn't an act of the will, right? So when we, when we say we're saved by faith, I'm not talking about something you generate for God. I'm not talking about something you talk yourself into or you put, you know, you're like, like, I will grow in faith, right? There's only one way to grow in faith and that is to grow in trust because the heart of faith is trust. Faith is a response, not a performance. Faith is, is, is our heart responding to the gracious truth revealed by God. Right? God makes a promise and that promise provokes us. We will either respond in trust or we will reject in mistrust, right? A, a promise provokes faith. The only way to take hold of a promise is through faith. I mean, how foolish it is if somebody shows up and says, here, I'm making you a promise, and you're like, great, I'm going to work for that. No, that's not how that works, right? You're either going to trust me or you're not. Now, here's the irony is that if I make the promise and it is an unconditional promise, it doesn't even matter. I will fulfill my promise, Right? It's not dependent even on your um, response to it. It is, it is, faith is a response of trust to what we find true and beautiful. And the promise provokes the response. The only way to take hold of the promise is, is to do it by faith. And faith itself is a response to the beauty and the trust embedded in the promise, right? It depends on faith. The promise depends on faith. Why? So that the promise can rest in grace. Now, this doesn't uh, just affect our relationship with God. It, it affects how we relate to others, right? As those who God comes to us with the promise, the gospel promise, 
It doesn't just change our relationship with God, it affects how we relate with others, right? Take a look at the first half of verse 17. So Paul moves on. He, Abraham's the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Now Paul is quoting Genesis 17.5. We'll explain that a bit more in a minute, but uh, it's the passage where, where Abram is renamed and, and, and God's making a point uh, in 17.5, right? He's declaring, um, you will be the father. I'm promising to give you a son, and that son, Isaac, is going to become the father of a unique nation, Israel. That's going to happen. I am creating a unique ethnic group out of all the ethnicities of the world to make unique covenants with. But I am not making you simply the father of that one ethnic group. They have a unique part in my plan, but they do not have an exclusive claim to my affection. They have a unique part in my plan, but they do not have an exclusive relationship with me. I am making you the father of many nations. The Greek word for nations is the Greek word ethnos, from which we get the word ethnic, right? From the very beginning, um, God is asserting, I, I, I have a unique plan, and that plan requires me to create a unique ethnic group out of all of human history for, for, a, for all of humanity to learn. But, but Abraham, I'm not just making you the father of, of that one ethnic group of, of, of the Israelites, of, of the Jewish descendants of Isaac. I, I'm no. I am making you the father of many nations, of many ethnicities. You will be the father not just of, of those that, you, uh, that come from the physical lineage, but those who come from the spiritual lineage, right? Not just those who, who come from the, the physical, but who come from the faith, right? Take a look at uh, the end of 17, right? As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. This was spoken to him in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham was given a promise, and Abraham had to trust the God who made that promise, right? Abraham had to trust the promise, and he was able to do that because he found the one who made the promise trustworthy. Right? He looked at the God who made the promise, and, and that made the promise irresistibly trustworthy, right? That, that, that this God who could make the impossible possible, this God who, who could raise life from the dead and call into existence that which doesn't even exist, this God made a promise, and because He made a promise, the promise is irresistibly trustworthy. Now, this is important. Because Abraham's faith was put to the test, right? Take a look at verses 18 and 19. For in hope, he believed against hope. This is a, an interesting Greek construction. Essentially what it means is this. He had hope in a hopeless situation, right? He had hope in a hopeless situation. He had hope where he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Um, that's a quote from Genesis 15, 5, where, where God said, your, your descendants will be like the stars of heaven and like the sands of seashore, right? So numerical, they can't even be counted. Overwhelming, right? So it was hope in a hopeless situation. He believed this promise that he would have, he would not just be the father of a child, but that child would, would lead to this incredible um, flourishing 
of, of, of humanity, right? Verse 19, he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. All right, let me give you a little bit of context here. If you're not familiar with the story of Abraham, let me give you a quick summary of what took place. In Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to a guy named Abram. That's his original name. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which is in modern Iraq. And God said, I want you to go that way. And he pointed, I don't know if he actually pointed, but he pointed him toward west, right? Toward what is modern day Israel, toward the Mediterranean Sea. He's like, I want you to go that way. And, um, and, and here's the thing, I don't want you to just go. I'm promising to make you a father. I'll make you a father of a nation. And I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. I will put my seal of protection upon you, right? Now, at this point, Abram's about 75 years old. Sarai, that was her original name, Sarai, Abram and Sarai. Sarai was 74. So they had, they had gone without a child for a long time, and it was starting to look kind of hopeless, Okay. Now, for us, that sounds like, oh man, it's already past the point. Okay, they age a little bit differently than we do currently. Um, not that much differently, but, but she was still in childbearing age at this point. And, um, but it was getting to a point where they're like, uh, things aren't working out, right? And in the ancient world, not having a child was a, a deep dishonor. It was a sign of, of not being blessed by God, potentially being cursed by God. And so this was something that they craved and yearned for. And God showed up and said, I'm going to meet your craving. I'm going to give you the blessing that you long for so deeply. I am going to give you a child, right? Genesis chapter 12. Just go that way and I'll make you a great nation. So Abram took all of his, his flocks and, and he was a fairly wealthy man. He took all of his servants and, and they all just started heading uh, west. Okay, Genesis 15. A couple chapters later, God shows back up. This is 10 years later, by the way. Okay, so, so this is a decade later. Abram now is 85. Sarai is 84, okay? And, and, and in Genesis 15, God shows up and he reiterates the promise. I will make you the father of many nations, right? And this time he actually creates a solemn covenant to, to reiterate and strengthen the promise. Not only did God give his word, he entered into a covenant relationship. It's a fascinating chapter. He has Abram uh, kill the sacrificial animals and separate them. And typically in, in the ancient culture, what they would do is, is the two people entering into a covenant would pass through those animals together. And it was a symbolic way of saying, if I don't keep my word, let this happen to me. Right? It was a way of, of binding themselves, not just to one another, but to the God uh, before whom they were sacrificing the animals. Right? Well, God put Abram to sleep. And he passed through the animals himself. It was a powerful reiteration of the unconditional nature of the promise. That God was saying, I am going to do this. Right? This is not dependent on you. This is not resting on you doing anything or even responding in any way. I will do this. And I will make it clear by actually entering into this crazy one-sided covenant where God himself passed through the slain animals saying, if I don't keep my word, let this be done to me. Genesis 16, the very next chapter. We don't know how long after Genesis 15 this is. But Abram and Sarai are, are looking at the situation saying, okay, God has made us promise. He's going to keep his promise. But it's looking less and less likely that it's actually possible. 
So we're going to come up with a plan for ourselves. We're going to help God fulfill his promise. Now, in the ancient world, if, if you had a couple that didn't have children, um, they could take the firstborn, one of their servants, and that firstborn could become uh, the legal heir of the home, right? The one who actually carries on the family name. Uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't preferred. In fact, it was a sign of dishonor, but it was a way of keeping the lineage alive. And so what Sarai does is invokes this custom. And she says to Abram, take Hagar, my servant, right? And, and have a child with her, and, and he will become the son of the family who will carry on the lion. So Abram does. And uh, Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And, um, uh, and, and that's their solution to the problem that, that they believe God has created, right? Now, God is gracious, and he ends up blessing and protecting Hagar and, and making Ishmael into a great nation. Um, but that is not God's plan, right? In Genesis 17, which is about 15 years later than Genesis 15. So it's been 24 years about since the original promise. God shows back up and he reiterates the promise. Now at this point, Abram is 99 years old. Sarai is 98. And God shows up and he's like, you know what? Not only am I going to reiterate the promise, but Abram, you're now Abraham. Abram means great father. Abraham means father of many. Right? I'm going to change your name to reflect the promise. And Sarai, I'm going to change your name too to Sarah. They both mean princess. Okay? I don't know what the meaning is there, but he does it for both. Okay? How crazy is this, y'all? He gave a promise when they were 75. The promise was still humanly possible. He waits 25 years. Sarai has now, or Sarah, has now passed through menopause. The text tells us that it is physically impossible for her to have a child. She's past childbearing years, right? He waited too long. He made a promise. And then he waited until it was physically impossible to fulfill the promise. In fact, Abraham in that chapter pleads with God, man, just, just receive Ishmael. Let Ishmael stand as the child of promise. Let, let this son of mine be the son of promise. And God's like, I didn't create a problem for you to solve it. I created a problem that I could solve. Sarah will have a son. Both Abraham and, and Sarah laugh. Um, it's a laugh that is edged with skepticism. It's, an, it's a laugh that is edged with 25 years of waiting and a promise not being fulfilled. And God says, all right, when you have your son, because you're going to have him in a year from now, you're going to name, name him Isaac which in Hebrew means laughter. And so, in Genesis 21, um, a year later, Isaac is born. So Abraham and Sarah clearly took the promise to heart and uh, clearly continued pursuing it. And, um, and God blessed and Isaac was born, and they were laughing. But their laughter wasn't skepticism. 
Their laughter wasn't edged. Their laughter was flowing from wonder, amazement, joy. The God who makes promises kept his promise. The God who can raise the dead and call into existence that which doesn't exist. Created an impossible situation and then did the impossible. He fulfilled his promise. And Isaac was born. God made a promise. He reiterated that promise. And he waited until it was physically impossible before he fulfilled that promise. And I want you to hear this. That was all part of his plan. God wasn't waiting for Abraham to do something right God wasn't waiting for Abraham and Sarah to to come up with the right solution. They were spinning, trying to solve God's problem for him, while God was waiting, saying, it's never been a problem. I made a promise. And I will keep it. Abraham had hope in a hopeless situation. Why? Because he believed the promise. And he believed the promise because he believed the God who made the promise. That he was the kind of God who could and would keep his word. Take a look at verses 19 uh, through 21. 19, he did not weaken in faith, that is Abraham, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was now 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith. As he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do that which he had promised. I love this. (laughs) Because it leads me to ask, what's going on here, Paul? Right? Like, I know what it says in Genesis. I'm fairly confident you know what it says in Genesis. Right? This is not a story that's a mystery to us or, or to the Jews in, in the first century or to the Romans, right? What's going on here? Is Paul just glossing over the history to make a point? Ignoring the whole Hagar and Ishmael thing? Like, like we'll just, you know, that was one of those embarrassing family stories. We just sweep it under the rug and pretend like it's not there and, and, and tell this great mythic story, you know, like, like we're prone to do. With American history, you know, we'll just ignore the bad stuff and proclaim the good stuff and, and, and it always makes us the hero and we love that stuff, right? Is that what Paul's doing? No. He's not changing the story. He's showing us how faith works through the story. Paul is looking at the process through the outcome of that process. Even though there were struggles in the process, Right? Ishmael and, and, and Hagar, Abraham and Sarah both laughing, right? That, 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 that powerful moment, right? Even though he tried to fulfill God's promise in his own way, through his own power, according to his own plan, right? Even though he tried to get God to accept Ishmael as the son of promise instead of waiting for God to fulfill the promise, Paul says that he didn't weaken in his faith, but instead grew strong. And this is true when you understand that he started with a weak faith that grew stronger. Abraham didn't start out as a completed product. He didn't begin the journey with a complete and mature and flawless faith. 
He began the journey with a weak faith. But a weak faith can take hold of a strong promise. And that's what Abraham did. He responded. As unbelievable as the promise was, he kept coming back in all the bewilderment and saying, look at the God who made the promise. I'm having a really hard time believing it. But I keep coming back and looking at the God who made the promise and that keeps coming back and strengthening my faith that it can, in fact, be fulfilled. He didn't weaken in his faith. He grew strong. Every time he was confronted with the frustrating reality around him, he was reminded of the powerful God above him. Every time he twisted under the growing impossibility of the promise, he was reminded of the nature of God who made the promise. Yeah, he felt hopeless. That's what it means to say that he had hope in a hopeless situation. He felt hopeless, but he wasn't. And the promise kept reminding him of that reality. The crisis of his faith became the crucible in which God grew his faith, right? God put him in a situation that was impossible, not so that Abraham could solve it, but so that Abraham could grow through it. Even though there was a struggle, God was at work in the struggle. God was freeing him by challenging him and growing his faith. Freeing him so that the promise might depend on faith so that it could rest in grace. Freeing him. Are you hearing me? This is the central idea of the passage, that that the promise would depend on faith. and, and, And Abraham would recognize that it depended on nothing else but his simply trusting in the promise that, that it might rest. Not in his solutions for God, but in God's solutions for him. Not in his work for God, but in God's work for him. Not not in his self-improvement or self-salvation or nothing that he brought to the table. Right? Verse 22. Paul drives it home with a quote from Genesis 15.5. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him. It was credited to him. It was imputed to him. It was given to him as righteousness. This brings us back to the central argument that Paul's been developing in in chapter 3 and and 4, that God justifies the ungodly, not on their merit, not on their wisdom, not on their effort, not on their morality, not in in their ways of making themselves feel better or better than others, right? God justifies the ungodly, not based on achievement or pedigree. Because God doesn't pay a wage. It's not something we can earn. He declares a truth in grace. He doesn't give what is due. He gives what we can never uh, claim as being due to us. It's a gift of grace. Righteousness was counted to him, credited, imputed to him, not earned. A gift of grace freely given, received simply by trusting the promise. So I want you to see something here. Um, Faith. You know, faith isn't a work that we do for God. Faith isn't an act of the will that we generate for God. Faith isn't a decision that we make for God. I will have faith. I will believe. Faith is a response 
to a promise. Faith is a response of trust to a character that we find beautiful and trustworthy. Faith is a response. And as a response, it grows in a process. It grows in its confidence. It grows in its assurance. It grows in in, in its responsiveness as it is tested. God made a promise. Abram received it. God waited to fulfill that promise, but he kept repeating it, both testing and growing Abram's faith. And then God waited until it was too late, humanly impossible, before fulfilling the promise to provoke Abram's faith. The promise gave birth to his faith, and the reiteration of the promise grew his faith. Faith isn't something Abram brought to the process. It was a response to what God brought to the process. Abram brought nothing and received everything. At no point was God not in control of the situation. At no point was God like scratching his head. I wonder if Abram's going to have enough faith to receive this promise. At no point was God like wondering, man, I I sure hope this one works. Like, I hope Abram gets himself in the right state of mind so that I can actually fulfill this promise and give the child a promise because this is the one that's supposed to ultimately be born to, that, that I'm going to work my salvation project through, right? Jesus himself. Nothing derailed God's promise. Not Abram, not Sarah's aged body, not, not Abram, Abraham's struggling faith. Nothing. It depends on faith so that it can rest in grace. I want to read you a verse. This is from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I would say it's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, but I, I have so many. that. Um, but this is one that the first time I read Ephesians, I have those little passages, you know, the first time you read a book, and, and some, sometimes the Spirit just, like, takes a passage and imprints it, man, on your mind and on your heart. This is one of those. And it says this, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. All right, same thing we've been talking about. By grace, through faith, right? You are declared right. You are set free from the consequence of your sin. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You didn't earn it. It's not a work. Your faith isn't even a work that you produce for God. Your faith itself is part of the gift. The whole thing is a gift from God. The promise and the faith that it provokes. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. We're not working on ourselves for God God is working on us for His own glory and our good. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even the good works that we do were simply laid out in the plan of God for us to do in response to the grace of God. Not to take hold of the grace of God or to earn the grace of God or even be worthy of the grace of God. But to simply respond to the grace of God. God prepared them beforehand that we should just walk in them. God had prepared 
the path before Abram. Abram just walked it. God had prepared the path before Sarah. Sarah just walked it. Abraham was secure in the promise long before he ever felt the fulfillment of that promise. Abram was secure in that promise before that promise had even been made. Because God had a plan and God works his plan and nothing can thwart the plan of God. Man, that was good news for Abram. Because he sure tried to derail it. That is sure good news for us too, right? Take a look at verses 23 and 24 in our chapter. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised up from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Abraham was promised a blessing and an inheritance that would come through his son. And we are promised a blessing and an inheritance that has come through his son. It's the same promise. It's the same blessing. It's the same inheritance. And it is the same process. It depends on faith. That it might rest in grace. I want to leave you with a little bit of encouragement. I love the phrase, he had hope in a hopeless situation. That, that is a very powerful, powerful phrase to my heart. Where are you struggling to have hope? Right now. Where is it becoming hopeless? Are you in a dark place personally? In your marriage? In a key relationship? In your life situation? Listen, despair is going to come in and whisper dark lies like there's no plan. Right? Life uh, is full of sound and fury, a tale told by an idiot, to quote Shakespeare. Right? It's going to come in and just whisper there's no plan. Right? There's no purpose, and therefore there's no hope. But the clear voice of God's promise is greater than any lies whispered by the enemy. God has promised to bless you. Okay, you. Like you. God has promised to bless you. God has promised to bless those who bless you and to curse those who curse you. The God who ordered all of human history to make it tell a story of redemption and restoration has not forgotten your part in the story. He has not overlooked your small chapter in the grand and beautiful story. But God is at work in your struggle to grow your faith. The promise stands and the promise will be fulfilled. But God is at work to grow your faith in that promise to set you free into its goodness. Are you struggling with a personal sin that you can't seem to break free from? Despair might whisper the dark lie that you will never be free, that this is who you are. 
And this is what you will always need. Listen, God's clear word is greater than the seductive lies. Remember that the God who who credits righteousness does it as a gift of grace, not as a result of those who have earned it and merited it through work. He doesn't pay it as a wage. You didn't earn it, and you can't lose it. God isn't dependent on you to free you from what enslaves you. And his love is not contingent on your success. He does not waver in his affection for you. Nor does he waver in his commitment to you. You aren't your sin. You are who God has declared you to be. Who who he's promised to make you. And that's grace. And it is the kindness, listen to me, it is the kindness of grace that will actually lead you to repentance. Not your commitment to be worthy of that grace. It is the kindness of grace that will lead you to the very life change you are desperate to experience to be set free into the glory of the goodness that he has promised to set free for you. God is at work even in your struggle with sin. Are you growing hopeless with the culture and the politics of our shared country? Are you growing hopeless with the hypocrisy and the abuse of power that we see around us, both in the world of politics and in the world of evangelicalism? God has promised not just to redeem individuals, but to redeem the systems those individuals create together. God is not simply redeeming individuals to take them in isolation from this world into a different place. He is redeeming those individuals that together we might create new systems that reflect the justice and the beauty and the freedom of the creation. That we might actually image God as we were created to do. He will bring in his blessing. He will destroy our culture of greed and death and abuse of power, and he will bring in the culture of the kingdom that is rich in grace and flowing in generosity, that is just and good. He will shake this world. That in the shaking, what is left is what can't be shaken, that which is good and right. And the shaking will begin with the household of God. so that we can be set free in love. God is at work to grow our faith in his character and our hope in his promise. It's easy to lose hope that God can and will change me. It is easy to lose hope that God is at work in my situation or in my culture or in this country or in in generational evil and wickedness but God made a promise to redeem and restore and he sealed it with a covenant not simply the covenant of Abraham where he walked through the slain animals in order to commit himself to to fulfilling his promise he walked through, through the cross where he actually was slain the only one 
committing himself to fulfill the promise to redeem and restore. We have God's word. We have God's covenant. We have God's promise. And we have the God whose character has been on display when he first spoke into existence that which didn't didn't exist, when he raised Christ from the dead, when he promised through that resurrection to redeem and restore all of human creation and all of God's creation with it. That's a blessing not just for Abraham, but for all who come in the faith of Abraham. We're going to look next week specifically at the role of the resurrection in this hope. For now, let me uh, close this in word of prayer. And we'll move into a time of response. Father, I thank you that you are the God who fulfills your promises. Not, not, you're the God who makes promises. <laughs> no one could demand that you make promises of grace. No one could put you in a situation that would force your hand to bless. But you graciously and lovingly Committed yourself to doing what we could not do, to paying the price we couldn't pay, to suffering that we might be set free from our suffering. You are the God who makes promises. And your promises are never empty. And your promises never go unfulfilled. Lord, grow our faith even as you grew Abraham's. That though we come with weak and faulting faith, though we stumble and, 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 and at times have a hard time seeing your hand at work in our lives or in the world around us, that you would remind us not only of the beauty of the promise, but of the, the beauty of the one who made that promise, that we might see your power, that we might see your glory, that we might see your love that that might provoke within us the trust that we also might not grow weak, but we might grow strong. That at the end of the day, we will be able to say with Abraham, we were fully convinced and we were not disappointed. 